Hello and welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Ben Lindbergh and I'm a writer for TheRinger.com, joined by my Ringer colleague, Michael Bauman. Hello. Hello. I've kind of got a case of the November baseball blues. I always find this time of year tough. Last time you and I talked, I mean, we talked on Thursday and we were discussing the most momentous game of this year or possibly any year and the most momentous outcome of our lifetimes, perhaps, and then... Suddenly, I'm supposed to care that Cameron Mabin was traded to the Angels, and I did a radio hit on Friday, and we talked about the World Series for a few minutes, and then it was, well, who's going to play center field for the Cardinals? And yeah. <laughs> it's really hard to to bring yourself to be interested in that, at least if you've been covering the postseason. I know that many fans, their team season ended quite a while ago, and so yeah. they've been looking forward to the winter. But if you've been on the edge of your seat waiting to see who would win the World Series, it's kind of a come down from that. It's, it's really weird. Like, what do I do at night with no <laughs> no games on? Like, on Friday night, I swear to God this is true, I watched seven episodes of Netflix's The Crown in one <laughs> sitting. <laughs> I just had no idea what to do with myself. I was excited for The Crown until The Ringer's Allison Herman said that it wasn't the Downton Abbey replacement we've all been looking for, uh, unfortunately. You like The Crown? I do. I'd never watched Downton Abbey, so I guess I don't have that uh, platform to be disappointed from. So we are going to transition into off-season mode, and later in this episode, we're going to talk to Tim Dirks, the founder and proprietor of MLBTradeRumors.com, and he's going to set the whole off-season scene for us and tell us about the top free agents and all the trends we should be watching, so that will get you into winter mode, but I just, I don't know, my heart's not in it yet, I need some time to decompress from the postseason before I transition to my off-season mode. In fact, I've said in the past that I would be happy if we knew nothing about what teams were doing all winter, and then when pitchers and catchers report to spring training, that's when we find out what teams did we just yeah, that would be that would be really bad for us as professional baseball writers it'd be bad for us it'd be bad for baseball it would definitely be bad for tim dirks and mlb trade rumors but i gotta say i mean that would be the most exciting day of the year right you'd stake out spring trading camp and see who shows up and that's how you know what your team did who all you, winter who do you think would be the most shocking arrival of the the past <laughs> few years I'm trying to think what have been the the most surprising free agent signing just someone like who goes from the Red Sox to the Yankees or something like Jacoby Ellsbury suddenly shows up in Yankees camp and Red Sox fans are aghast I don't know something like that but yeah yeah or I mean, like Johnny Damon like Spike and Little Giants <laughs> yeah right that would be uh that'd be the most fun day of the year I think surprise <laughs> off-season transaction day well again the, the Cubs sort of did that with Dexter Fowler Last yeah, year. I, I mean, it's true. just another way the Cubs are ahead of the curve and <laughs> right. anticipating the evolution of baseball. <laughs> then we wouldn't have to chase fake rumors. We wouldn't have to refresh every five seconds. But what would we do all day at work, I guess? So before we get to Tim, just a, a couple of quick things. I was reading a, a really good article by Neil Payne at 538 about Theo and about the two drought breaking teams that Theo built. And he pointed out that. There are very clear contrasts between the 2004 Red Sox and the 2016 Cubs and the way that he built those teams. So when he took over the Red Sox, it was a veteran team and he made it even more of a veteran team and he kind of doubled down on that. Whereas with the Cubs, he rebuilt and, and did the youth movement, at least on the position player side. And he also pointed out that the Cubs are much more homegrown than those Red Sox were, but less homegrown than I was thinking, like 43% of the Cubs wins of every placement this year 
was homegrown was guys who debuted with the Cubs. And that's okay. less than I would have thought. He said the average for a championship team is 50%. So less homegrown than the typical World Series winner, which I would not have guessed. Yeah, particularly with that definition of homegrown where you get guys like Hendricks and Rizzo as, right. as homegrown. Right. Well, I guess actually Rizzo wouldn't be, right? Because Rizzo played for oh, the Padres up, very yeah. briefly. Yeah. But the pitching well, there staff you go. Is... There's your other 7% right there. <laughs> yeah, right. The pitching staff is obviously old and experienced like the Red Sox pitching staff was, but the position players are much younger and more talented. And and Neil also pointed out that he's kind of changed stylistically how he beat the team and that the 2004 team was this plodding sort of moneyball type team that was pretty bad defensively, but got on base and hit for power. And that was kind of the, the model, the undervalued skill at the time. And maybe now it's transitioned more toward defense and the Cubs built maybe the best defensive team ever. So Theo has shown that he can change with the times and yeah build a, a different sort of team and so that made me wonder the thing that everyone is wondering which is where does Theo go from here and it doesn't seem like he's going anywhere from here he's staying with the Cubs for a while and he seems happy and he just signed an, an extension and seems to want to stay in baseball as I think he's to... still drunk too <laughs> he, like, might that's still a... be, <laughs> he might still be drunk he, uh, yeah, he did say he was just going to let Hoyer take over till the winter meetings, right? So, And, and the next day he showed up on, on a rooftop in a bear costume, <laughs> pouring champagne all over himself. So, Yeah, it sounds fun to be Theo right now. Yeah, but... he's, he's certainly earned it. <laughs> so assuming he doesn't run for president or something, and if he did, I think a lot of us might vote for him right now. But assuming he stays in baseball, is there anything he could do that you would like to see him do down the road? Say he's got another, I don't know, 30 more years ahead of him as a high-level baseball executive. There's no slump that he can bust that's as long-lasting and as renowned as the ones that he has already broken. But is there some challenge if you could just, you know, assign Theo to any team and he has to go? What would you Apart would from you do? the Phillies? Um, <laughs> yeah. Right. Apart from your team, yeah. what would you um, want to see him do? The obvious one's Colorado, right? I think so. Yeah, I, I think so. I, if he could go to the Rockies, and we talked about them recently, and it seems like they are an ascendant team as it is, so maybe they don't need his help. But yeah, if we could see Theo go and actually crack the Coors Field code and figure out how to develop pitching there and build a sustainable winner, that seems like the greatest sort of institutional challenge that's around. Or if he, what you're saying about the the way the teams evolved, like, I don't know if that's Theo changing so much as just the state of the sabermetric art changing, because you know, yeah. the, the 2004 Red Sox really were up very much of their time. Yeah. So, you know, whatever the next thing is will be the next championship team he builds. Although if he keeps, you know, drafting highly polished college power hitters like Kyle Schwarber and, and Chris Bryant, then my desire to see him take over the Rockies only increases. Yeah, right. And it might be fun to see him take over a small market team, right? I mean, he's done it with the Red Sox. He's done it with the Cubs. These are both teams that can afford to spend and don't have to worry about losing their fan bases. So if Theo were to, say, take over the the Brewers or something like that, I yeah. mean, I I don't we think talked about that like, with Brian Cashman 
all the yeah, way back right. in, over the summer. Yeah. So, you know, I don't think Theo is like a, a product of high payrolls or anything. I mean, he showed that he can draft and develop young guys who aren't making much at all, and he can acquire undervalued pitchers from other teams who aren't highly paid. So I don't think it's just that he has spent his way to titles or anything, but it would be fun to it see helps. him take over a, a less legendary team and see if he can do it without the, the built-in advantages or not if he can do it, but how he would do it differently. Yeah, you want to see Spring, or I was going to say Springsteen, I guess in Theo's case it would be Pearl Jam going back to, to playing clubs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, one more thing before we get to Tim, Dave Cameron wrote something for Fangrass about whether the playoffs are getting too different from the regular season or at what point that would be the case because we obviously see a much different schedule in the postseason, many more off days, which enables teams to not only use their pitchers differently, but use different pitchers and just not use the guys they had to use to get them there and really rely on their best relievers and their best starters. And you can really kind of be a different team and, and play a different style of baseball in October. And you could make an argument that that's a bad thing, that you should have to play the way you played all year to win a championship. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I I appreciate that. I just don't know how to fix it. And, uh -huh. you know, I don't well, know if they... Yeah, right. You could have like a 3-4 system, home for three, away for four kind of thing instead of 2-3-2. Two, two. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it goes the other way in everybody playing the drinking game at home. It goes the other way in college baseball where you go from playing... <laughs> four or five games a week to play in like six and then everybody runs out of pitchers and then everybody on Texas and UCLA gets Tommy John the the next spring. So, you know, I don't know. Maybe I like having the rest days just to decompress and when, you know, there was a lot of talk about how all the American League playoff games were in the middle of the afternoon on weekdays. Like mm -hmm. either you're going to have more than one game going on at a time or you're going to have a, a game in the afternoon and then staggering the rest days gives you a chance to put more series in prime time. So I agree with that. It's well, I actually don't know that I agree that it's a problem. I mean, it's mm -hmm. just, it's different. So I yeah. don't know if it's, if I like it better or worse, but you know, I don't know that I've got a better idea. Sorry for giving you the least useful answer that I possibly could have. <laughs> I think I actually like it for now. There might be a, a point at which it becomes just too drastically different, but for now, I, I kind of like it. I mean, yes, you can just, I don't know, it, it's not really cheap to change the way you play or, you know, if you have a weak end of the rotation or bottom of the bullpen, you can get by without that in the postseason, whereas you can't really during the regular season. So in a sense, it's, I don't know, yeah. it's you aren't subject to the same weaknesses that you are throughout the season. You know what? I've season, changed but... my mind. Changed, <laughs> but... I, I like it that it's, that it's different <laughs> because the... Like part of the appeal of baseball in the regular season is it takes five months and it's there six days a week and it's just always on in the background. And it's very quotidian. And then when it when the playoffs happen, like all of a sudden the intensity gets ratcheted up to 11 and then, you know, there's no greater indicator of it being crunch time than shortening your rotation and substituting more and managing completely differently. So I think I yeah. think I like that it's different. Yeah, and I think it adds some strategy in that you you still have to get there, so you can't just build you know a team with three good starters mm -hmm. and two good relievers and nothing else because you won't get to the postseason. So you have to figure out a way to balance it, and so you have to keep the postseason in mind, but still 
build a team that can win in the regular season. And so I like that element, I think. So I like it for now. Maybe they will diverge at some point by so much that it will be unrecognizable. But the other thing is that the postseason has never really been a a great reflection of which team is actually best. So as long as that's not the case, as long as the best regular season team is not going to win the World Series most years anyway... It doesn't matter so much if, if it's actually a different play style, I don't think. Well, don't don't tell anybody that the team that wins the World Series isn't always the, the best team. I think that, you know, <laughs> I think we generally agree that's true this year, but very yes. rarely is that the case. Right. All right. So we are joined now by Tim Dirks, who is the founder of MLB Trade Rumors and all of the various Trade Rumors sister sites for other sports. And this is a a big, busy time of year for him. So we wanted to have him on for a a sort of off-season overview to get us in the hot stove mindset. So Tim, welcome. Thanks for having me. Are you a pitch watcher? Have you watched pitch at all? I have not. I think, uh, are you mentioning that because of the the uh, trade deadline episode? <laughs> yeah, so a couple episodes ago, there was a, a trade deadline show, and everyone was wondering who's going to get traded, and all the players were consulting this sort of MLB trade rumors ripoff, just called traderumors.com, which, you know, seemed like they were trying to make your site without actually naming your site, except that traderumors.com redirects to MLB trade rumors, so I guess it played right into your hands, but they, they showed the site on the screen, and they showed an app, and it was like a kind of a worse looking version of your actual site. <laughs> so I wondered what your reaction to that was if you had seen it. But I guess you you heard about it one way or another. Yeah, I really want to check out the episode and I think I will. Um, a couple of uh, and our so writers... And so the lawyers, I imagine. If... <laughs> yeah, I don't know what the deal. A couple of our writers brought that up to me and it sounded really cool, but they mentioned like, well, it's like a semi-reference. It's not a direct reference. Yeah. And um I mean, so I haven't heard from the show or the writers. So there's no, nothing there. So I think I kind of acted a little too late. I do own uh, TradeRumors.com. Um, we bought that from a guy in Minnesota. It was weird because Steve Adams actually had to meet him in person and give him a check because he, he was paranoid <laughs> about taking money online. Like he really thought I was trying to steal it from him. And um, so I think we pictured some sort of hub for all four of our sites, but, uh, you know, it it kind of wasn't in use. And then people told me about the show. So then I hurried up and redirected it to MLBTradeRumors.com. So (laughs) I don't know. I I think I doubt there would be too many visitors thinking, wow, you know, what's that fake site on on the show pitch? I wonder if that is real. So I don't think it really mattered. Yeah. So Michael and I were just chatting a bit about how it can be tough to transition into the off-season mindset and how, you know, one day you're you're watching the World Series and then the next day you're supposed to care about whose options are getting picked up and qualifying offers and all these things that relatively speaking are pretty unexciting and you are a Cubs fan. So you went from the ultimate excitement to having to get into off-season mode or I guess you've been prepping for the off-season for some time. And Anyway, but is it harder than usual for you to pay attention to contracts and rumors at this time of year? Yeah, it's been very strange, the complete uh, lack of a gap between, you know, the Cubs season ending and, and the offseason <laughs> beginning. I mean, I'm not obviously not used to that. And um, so, yeah, like like I, I would be watching the games and at the same time writing blurbs for our free agent list. And, you know, like it's hard not to be swayed. Like you see Chapman pitched so great in game five. I was like, ah, oh, they got to retain him. And then, you know, he gave up that home run. I'm like, ah, oh, that guy's gone. 
<laughs> and I'm like, how do I kind of remove myself from watching these games and being a Cubs fan to trying to, you know, write this thing that's coming out Monday? So it has been strange. So I'm sitting here looking at the list of free agent destinations that uh, are going to go up on the site. And I was just wondering how that, how all that comes together. Like, you know, how far in advance does, you know, are you guys working on this? You know, how do you project these salaries, the, the whole process? Um, so we've been working on it for about a month. But in a way, I guess you could say, you know, some of the groundwork began, uh, I don't know, in March or April. Um, a few years ago, we started our free agent power rankings. And um, so we would do a top 10 each month. Um, for for the off season, even once even when the off season was six months off and the season was underway and stuff, so that at least gave me an idea, and it, it was pretty well established that Cespedes and Encarnacion would be like towards the top, and you know, but some some of it has changed quite a bit. Like I really had Andrew Kashner prominently, I think, in March, and and now he's kind of way down there. So um, it began then, um, but you know, it, it kind of began in earnest a month ago. Um, it just involves tons of collaboration with the MLB Trade Rumors writing team. Um, uh, Steve Adams and Jeff Todd uh, and Jason Martinez are all uh, full-time employees of ours, so I, I feel like I can uh, really bug them. So I'll uh, I'll send like a million emails and we'll do phone calls and stuff. And and uh, it's just you know it can be a bit of a slog when you're trying to figure out like where Fernando Salas should sign and stuff. Um, <laughs> you know, so we've grinded through it and we feel pretty good about it in, in a way the contracts are easier and that you know you can debate that and kind of just come up with some numbers that everybody feels good about the teams are trickier because you know in years past we've tried to kind of warn the readers that this is not a picture of 50 things that could all happen at once like all these signings and that if your team didn't get a guy it doesn't mean that we don't think he will get one of these guys um but, you know, that's kind of a lot to ask. It's already like a... Yeah, how, how has that gone, convincing the readers to... Very you poorly. Know. <laughs> so it's kind of like a four to 5,000 word post every year. And even the idea that somebody would read the whole thing, um, you know, is a bit of a reach. So, uh, you know, trying to explain some nuanced, you know, way of doing this is, is not working. So this year, I think we're moving a little bit towards... Um, a concept of, well, this could really happen. And if we put Mark Trumbo back on the Orioles, then, you know, we're, we can't put Kendrys Morales there too. You know, in years past, I might have picked two DHs for one team and just kind of said, hey, you know, I like them for, for each of these guys in a vacuum. And, and I'm trying to get away from that because it just confused everybody. Oh, might not deter the Orioles, though. <laughs> yeah, maybe they'll That's find true. a way. Yeah, they can find a way. Well, when I was asking you to come on the show, I said, you know, I don't know if we'll actually ask you about any specific destinations because who the heck knows where anyone's going to sign. And you said, well, actually, we're trying to know or we're doing our best to project who's going to go where. And I think you've been doing some sort of top 50 free agent list since the 2005-2006 offseason. So this would be your 12th time doing this. Do you think you've gotten any better at projecting where guys are going to go? Has the market become more predictable or have you become better at predicting it? Um, I, yeah, I think this is our 11th year. And some of those early lists were probably pretty shaky. And I know we didn't do contract projections and stuff. So it's definitely evolved a bit. And certainly there also there's more collaboration from the team. Like in, in the beginning, you know, there wasn't much of a team. And I would just kind of come up with it. And now not only are we talking to all of our writers, but we're kind of 
running it by contacts that we have in the game just to see if something jumps out to them. Um, so I think the uh, logic and thought process behind it has gotten stronger over the years. Um, I haven't really gone back and kind of tried to measure my results, um, partially because I think they'd probably be pretty bad. Um, <laughs> I think maybe we topped out at like, you know, we kind of make it into a batting average. So we maybe topped out at like 300 batting average and and we can get maybe a few of them right, but really most of them are going to be wrong. And, we, you know, we've kind of come to accept that if you get like a dozen or 15 of them correct out of 50, you did a pretty good job. And, you know, especially because, you know, something can happen in the first week that kind of invalidates multiple picks. Like like I had Michael Saunders going to the Angels when they made that trade. I'm like, okay, we need a new team for him. And so <laughs> it happens so quick where it just, you know, it, the whole picture changes. So, you know, apart from, like, I imagine you guys didn't spend a whole lot of time on Boone Logan just because nobody cares, but, like, who was the easiest to project and who had you guys going around and around, you know, for, for days on end? I'd say, you know, I think there were a few guys where we all kind of agreed um, on on where they would go and probably the the approximate price tag, I think. Uh, Justin Turner going back to the Dodgers was one where we all felt like it just made the most sense. Um, they had no real alternative. They can afford him. Uh, there's not a lot of teams seeking a third base, especially big market teams. So, you know, we didn't really debate it. And I also felt that, um, especially this year, if there was something where the team pick was kind of down the middle or on the nose or what everybody expects it to be, um, but if we think that that consensus makes sense we're gonna go with it so you know we are putting Encarnacion on the Red Sox and Melanson on the Giants and everybody expects that but I think you know our confidence level is probably too high you know there's probably like a 70% chance Melanson signs somewhere else or, or more but like still the Giants still just make a lot of sense they tried to get him before they have the money he's not as expensive as the other two guys and it's like well all the pieces fit. Let's not get too cute or too clever with it. So just glancing at the list, there is not a ton of talent on here relative to some of the lists that we've seen in the past. I mean, last year may have been a a more talent than average year, but just, you know, looking at your projections from last year, you had nine guys projected for contracts of more than $100 million. Seven guys actually got contracts that big and this year Cespedes is the only free agent you are projecting for that big a deal so is this the weakest free agent class you can remember ranking one there was one oddball back in there I think it was the one where Matt Holiday and John Lackey signed um, uh-huh. I think like if you looked at the total spent on free agents it's a pretty steady upward arrow but then like in that winter uh, they just kind of didn't spend maybe that was cj wilson too like they just didn't spend because the guys weren't there um but certainly in terms of starting pitching um this is this has got to be the worst i've ever seen um like (laughs) and it's such a weird contrast to last winter where the eighth best starting pitcher might have been ian kennedy and he'd probably be the biggest earner in this market so yeah you've got jeremy hellickson as the top starting pitcher yeah (laughs) so that's not super exciting very strange (laughs) and if if you're a team that is willing to market somebody who's truly good like the white Sox guys um i mean i would just think the price would just have to go way up because there's nobody you can sign like nobody really likes jeremy hellickson that much 
I mean, I'm sure someone does. <laughs> somebody, I think somebody will talk themselves into him. Um, as often happens, like teams just get irrational, like, oh, this is out here. And I don't think they're totally swayed by those binders that come from the agents, but maybe they're flipping through them and they're like, yeah, okay. I, I don't really know like how they, how they get into the mindset that kind of some of these mediocre guys are worth big contracts, but I think it just happens, you know, just irrational behavior. Michael, as a Phillies fan, does seeing Hellickson as the top free agent starting pitcher make you mad that he was not traded last year? No, actually, it makes me it makes me a little feel a little bit better about their decision not to trade him because it might be worth giving him a qualifying offer. And I was uh -huh. pro qualifying offer on that okay. uh, from the beginning because I mean the Phillies can probably afford to spend about a hundred million dollars more than they did last year, which Tim has some of that uh, going to Ian Desmond, which I think would be really cool. Uh -huh. But do you think, Tim, do you think there's a a team that even in this free agent class might be poised to improve itself? Like just, you know, there's not a lot of talent overall, but is there a team whose needs fit up with the talent that does exist out there? Yeah, I think you could probably say that with the with the Giants and maybe with the Red Sox. Um, Giants, I think the Giants are looking at, of course, a closer primarily, and then most people think some kind of left fielder. Um, and I think there's some really good options at closer and some decent options that you could plug into left field. So, I mean, I feel like they could plug those two holes in a pretty straightforward way and feel like, wow, you know, our team is a lot better than it was because of this. And we have Matt Moore all year. So I think the Giants could kind of assign two, three guys and, and then feel pretty good. And, and the Red Sox, we went with Encarnacion and just like a, a return of uh, Brad Ziegler. But, you know, whoever it may be that they bring in to their bullpen, um, you know, there's always some arms. And, of course, there's a danger in picking the wrong ones. But, you know, the the relief market is acceptable. And you would expect Dombrowski to kind of operate towards the top end of it, if not the top closer, guys. So, And then, like, it, it's so easy to fill a DH spot, especially if you're a team that's willing to kind of run out the uh, full-time DH, which they've done for so long. Um, I think there's just, I don't know, a dozen DH guys or, like, you know, at least like eight or something. And there's really only 10 teams you could even squint and can picture signing some of these guys. So I think it's kind of a buyer's market for a designated hitter. We've been wondering for a while whether we would see a change in free agent availability because of the trend toward extensions and some of the CBA changes and how that's affected the market. And so a few years ago, I did an article coming off the 2013 to 2014 offseason, which was a year of record free agent spending. And it was looking ahead to the following offseason, which projected at the time to be one of the weakest classes, maybe the weakest class in recent memory. And, and that was a weak class. But then the following year, which was last offseason, was another big, I think, possible possibly record year for free agent spending. And now we're back to this. So we've sort of seesawed between huge years and very fallow years in alternating off seasons. And I wonder, do you have any theory for why this year's class is so weak? Is it just chance or does it have to do with a, a bunch of guys who might have been free agents, but signed extensions? Is it, is it a reflection of the way baseball economics work now? Um, well, not to cop out, but I would say it's probably both. Um, I haven't looked, um, at least recently, at the guys that would have been free agents who aren't. Um, but, you know, I'm sure 
there's a good 10 names where you're like, wow, this would be a blockbuster free agent class if these guys were out there. Um, But I also think, you know, we have had that whole extension trend for, I don't know, the better part of a decade or something. And as you said, there's been ebbs and flows. There's been classes that everybody thought were great. What's that one in the future, like after 2018 or something? It looks like crazy good. And even if some of even if half those guys drop off, it's going to like just dwarf a class like this. So I just think there's ups and downs. And a lot of it just depends on like when the Scott Boris guys broke into the league and what, you know, what marks six years later for those guys. Mm -hmm. So the qualifying offer news is coming in today. And as we record, we don't have all of the announcements yet. So I'm asking you to speculate to a certain extent. But what would you think would be the most difficult calls teams are having to make right now? I think, you know, none of them seem too difficult to decide. I'd say there's maybe five guys where you could at least have some uncertainty. Um, Neil Walker, Michael Saunders, Matt Wieters, Mike Napoli, and Kendrys Morales. Of those, I think only Walker would get it, and I pretty much agree with that. I think I think the word on the Blue Jays is that they wouldn't do Saunders, and I don't think too many people thought they would. I really can't picture Wieters just for the risk of that happening again, him, him accepting and kind of with, with the various holes they have to fill, you lock him in at $17 million. I don't think mm-hmm. that's what they want to do. And the Indians in Napoli, like, it could be, I could picture some kind of uh, Marco Estrada or, like, Michael Kadirish thing where it's like, we offer it or we're going to offer it, but let's just hammer out a two-year deal under the the threat of it or or even after it's offered, but before he has to decide whether to accept. I I don't think the Indians would want something, though. I don't think either party would really want something where he has to go out into the market I mean, he wouldn't want to go out into the market with that attached, but they wouldn't really want him to accept. So that's that's one that's kind of on the fence. And I think the Royals are, are pretty clearly not going to give one to Morales. Just, it, it's just too risky for their, for their payroll. So the, the qualifying offer itself, though, is a, an artifact of the current CBA, which uh, expires on December 1st, right in the, the middle of, of this free agent season. So, you know, in, in the event of a new CBA you know, happening sometime in the next four weeks or so that might change some of these rules. You know, have you started planning ahead for that, trying to anticipate possibilities? Or are you just going to deal with that when it comes? You know, the reporting on it has, on, the, on the whole CBA negotiations, I feel like um, the, the people who are doing that are keeping it pretty well under wraps. I mean, there's been, um, you know, the whole thing about the international draft. There's been uh, an article from Susan Slusser about the uh, the A's maybe losing some of their revenue sharing or all of it. But there hasn't been like kind of like the wall-to-wall leaks and, and tons of info that I kind of expected would happen. So I think at this stage we're still pretty speculative. And uh, I mean, I expect the qualifying offer system to stay in place for this winter. And then I, I think maybe... One effect we could have this year would be, I don't know, if if the union, if the players union is communicating to some of these guys uh, like a Mike Napoli that um, that they're likely to have a rule where you can't get that offer two years in a row, um, then maybe a guy like that, if he feels that that's likely to be true, he could accept it now knowing that he doesn't have to deal with it, you know, a year later. Um, but other than that, I feel like it should be mostly business as usual. I think... We'll see maybe half as many players get qualifying offers, but, you know, part of it is just the lack of talent, and part of it was that the players kind of struck back um, by accepting three of them, 
maybe it didn't cause a problem for the Dodgers and Brett Anderson, but for the Astros and Orioles, I felt like it changed what they could do. And it was kind of like the teams kept pushing it to the point where they made 20 of these to some pretty marginal players. And then the players, you know, you know, good for them. A couple of them said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll call your bluff. And, and now, so I think on the Kendrys Morales type, teams will probably back off. And do you expect the market to be slow to develop at all as teams wait to see how the CBA negotiations shake out? Because, you know, every now and then there's sort of a an influential free agent who will hold things up, like when Matsuzaka was possibly available and everyone was waiting to see if he would be posted and how much he would cost. It seemed to slow down the whole pitching market until that was resolved. And I wonder whether we'll see something similar because of the CBA or maybe not because it might not actually affect anything in the present. It's pretty hard for me to say. Um, I do think, you know, there, there's like, there's five guys who, well, I mean, you can kind of count Rich Hill in this because he, he was on a one-year deal. But, you know, at least with Cespedes, Dexter Fowler, Ian Desmond, and Matt Wieters, those are guys who are, who are very strongly not going to want to be free agents in 2017. Um, so I think, and, and they're also, you know, a lot of the top names. And I think Rich Hill fits that, too. If somebody kind of hits his number, I think he's going to jump on it. I don't think he wants to be sitting there in February or March. So I think there could be some fast-moving deals. And I think, too, like a Melanson, uh, Steve Adams and I have talked about this, he could be the he could hold the record for the for the top uh, free agent relief contract for like a, for like a month or for a few weeks, and I think his agent would like to be able to say that you know go get him fifty two million bucks or something. So I think there's a lot of guys who have who have a vested interest in in getting their deals quickly. Like they set a number, the number is hit, then you don't mess around, you take it. Like if somebody offers Dexter Fowler four years and mid fifties. He's got to jump on it. He can't push it and see if he can get to 60 or mid-60s. So this is a, an extremely unscientific question, but, I, you know, Fowler jumped off the, the page at me just because you had, you know, right now he's going on SNL with the with the Cubs and then you've got him going to the Cardinals. So is he is that the free agent move that you think is going to piss fans off the most or do you have another one that you, you know, you're sort of considering in the back of your mind? Mm, that's a good question. Which one would piss fans off the most? Let's see. I mean, I don't know that the that the Fowler thing would. Um, I think you know Cardinals fans are certainly aware that the team has a need and he at least somewhat fits it and they would at least take a look I'm talking about the other way the the Cubs fans yeah yeah I've kind of thought about that as a Cubs fan and you know it was I I actually had this thought while I was watching SNL last night I was like you know he's technically not a Cub you know he's out there singing and wearing their jersey and stuff but he technically has no team right now I don't think so. I think Cubs fans are pretty logical about that and also have just tons of faith in Theo and the front office. So, you know, it's not and it's not too hard to explain to people that even if you just look at their outfield without Fowler, it's really crowded. Like you're running out Schwarber and left and, and Hayward, I guess, in center and I guess Zobrist and right if, if you're committed to Baez as your second baseman. So that pushes out Solaire. And all three of those starting guys kind of seem like they're all out of position because, you know, Schwarber isn't much of a left fielder. Hayward needs to work on his hitting, yet we're going to ask him to do a new position, I guess. Or maybe Almora gets involved there. And then Zobrist, you know, he was kind of the left fielder towards the end of the season. So that's a pretty weird outfield to sort out as it is. If you throw Fowler back into that, it just gets all the more complicated. And, and you know, he needs to play every day and... 
I feel like Schwarber and Zobers need to play every day. So, I mean, where does that leave Hayward? I mean, it's, it's just such a mess if you bring him back. So I think the Cubs would have to take a similar approach of, hey, you know, one year, two years in February, you know, we'll, we'll push things aside and make room for you. But, like, we want you to go get your four-year deal and, and go get it, you know. So I, I think the Cardinals could be interested. Among many teams, you know, Steve Adams has kind of pushed the Blue Jays. I mean, I, I think his market could be different. It's always kind of hard to project a guy who, who kind of failed so hard in free agency to turn around and just come right back out and get that deal that he didn't get. But you could you could list a good dozen teams where you're like, yeah, that makes yeah. sense. So, I mean, I think he'll do fine. I wonder whether the pretty disastrous year one results of last year's free agent crop will affect anything this winter. I doubt it would affect how a front office evaluates anything, but maybe some owners might look at how last year's deals worked out and, and get a bit skittish about it. Because if you look at the, the big deals like of the $100 million guys, I think Cueto is the only one who really met expectations or exceeded them in his first year. And you can even go down. I think Dave Cameron looked at all the guys over 70 million, which was 13 players. And really, it was just Cueto and maybe Cespedes and maybe Price, who I think most people probably considered disappointing, who were anywhere close to meeting expectations. So in addition to this year's crop being weak, I wonder whether there will be any effect from last year's failures or or whether no one will really look at that. I hadn't really looked at, at how bad they failed until you just said that. And that's interesting. But I also think Teams will never learn. I mean, <laughs> these are the players that are available. They've been right. doing bad contracts, you know, for 20 years or something. So, yeah, there's going to be some bad contracts. And, you know, some of these some of these are kind of like jumping off the page. Like, well, if this actually happens, it's going to be almost instant regret, like Mark Trumbo on a four-year deal. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, we don't know. Like some of those guys, we don't know. Maybe he is a guy where the teams mostly agree and suddenly he's looking at three years and then before you know it, he's on a surprise one-year deal. I mean, because... Yeah. Is he like the most likely, you know, qualifying offer victim who lingers into spring training or is there someone else who comes to mind? I think he's up there. Um, I I could see it being a bit of a problem for Neil Walker if he doesn't just kind of go quickly back to the Mets on a more modest deal because there's not a ton of teams looking at second base that's inexplicable to me by the way like i might just be the biggest neil walker fan on the planet but he's really good and yeah i like, know i mean he is know, the image of him you know lingering on the vine until you know and he got traded for john niece last year like I, I don't know, maybe i'm missing something that but. well i mean that i feel like that trade told you a little bit about how teams felt about him as a 10 million dollar player so, you know, if we're talking about him being a $12, $13 million player, as justified as that is, and you throw in a pretty serious back surgery, um, you know, we've already got him down to three years. And then, you know, we could kind of see the Angels or the Dodgers or, or like a very short list of teams that have like a clear second base opening and would be willing to throw down, you know, $35 bucks for a second baseman. I guess it's just a position that... Yeah, it's a tough... You don't yeah, really tough spend big splurge, bucks on, yeah. like, for, for kind of a useful player. Like, I thought Daniel Murphy would do much better last winter. Maybe I was kind of swayed by the playoffs. But, yeah, and so he didn't do well. And, uh, you know, so I, I don't know. Yeah, Walker's definitely up there as a guy who I think could, could be out there. None more than Trumbo. I think Jose Bautista would be a good, a good guy who could kind of be sitting out there and teams could be skeptical of giving up their draft pick for him. 
So I'm fascinated by the relief pitcher market because it seemed, I think, like last year, maybe teams were reining back the reliever spending a little bit or bringing it more into line with what internet people have always thought relievers were worth. Not completely, but there seemed to be fewer you know, record-breaking closer contracts. But now we are coming off the October of relievers when we saw the Indians ride Andrew Miller all the way to the seventh game in the World Series. And and we saw Jansen and Chapman get pushed past their usual limits. And we've also got the incredibly weak starting pitcher market. So there's no one you can really sign there who makes much of an impact. So maybe you go more toward closer. So I'm I'm trying to remember what the biggest... It's the only position, really, that I can see on this list that's strong in, yeah, in this right. free class. Yeah, you've got Chapman, you've got Jensen, you've got Melanson. I'm trying to remember what the biggest free agent contract for a reliever is. Is it still Papelbon's uh, four years and 50? Or? I'm pretty it sure it's still Papelbon. Yeah, Speaking that was, of mid-CBA... Uh, that was five uh, years mistakes. ago. So, I mean... Yeah, that was a long time ago. So it's been a while since that high has been broken and, and you've got Melanson essentially equaling that and then Chapman and Jansen just completely blowing it away. So is that a product of those two closers being uh, you know, among the three or so best in baseball? Or are you thinking that sort of the, the weakness in other areas of the market and the postseason storylines will conspire to, to push up the dollars? It's all of it. I mean, I think when you get to the to numbers that are, I mean, maybe even a $50 million contract, you know, owners start getting heavily involved in it. But I think once you start to approach $100 million contracts, um, it's very much an ownership decision. And, you know, some of the savviness of a front office kind of goes by the wayside. And the owner's like, hey, man, give me one of those guys. Give me one of those Kenley Jansen guys that really shut it down. And it's kind of just this visceral thing where, the agent just has a field day because the bidding just goes up, up, up. And, you know, rationality is just way, way since gone. So I think both of those guys, Chapman and Jansen, get five-year deals, um, which we have not seen in, in a very long time. And it's been very rare. I think B.J. Ryan is the one free agent <laughs> who got it, and that went disastrously. <laughs> and, yeah. But I still think... B.J. Ryan compared to the rest of the relievers and closers, and then Chapman and Jansen compared to you know the current crop. Um, there is a difference there. Like it's also pretty rare that we just see relievers this good reach free agency. I think um, I remember people said David Robertson should take the qualifying offer. I mean, look at what a blunder that would have been to, to accept. You know, he was he was a very good closer, and he was easily the you know the top guy out there, and he got paid. And so I think. You got to go to five years, and even if you don't want to, and then you got to take the salary up into that fifteen to eighteen million dollar range. And even though that seems crazy in light of what's been spent on relievers, and in light of like the true wins above replacement that, that they can provide, I think also it's not that tough of a sell if you're looking at like a number four starter like Hellickson costing you sixty million, and maybe Jansen costs eighty or ninety million. You know, if you think he can stay healthy for four of those years, you know, just locking down the ninth inning sounds great. And if you already have a pretty good setup, man, like, you know, you can really talk yourself into it. Yeah, to say nothing of we're at the point right now where the cost of a win on the free agent market, like $18 million for Aroldis Chapman, you know, if he's a two-win player, that's, you know, pretty close to, to breaking even at this point. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah. You know, I've kind of... 
I don't know about war for relievers. I've always kind of raised an eyebrow at that. I, don't, I mean, mm-hmm. we both wrote Zach, Zach Britton for award <laughs> pieces this summer. So, you know, you're at the, the right audience for that. Okay, yeah. I mean, I've always wondered, does, does that system kind of fall apart in, in the relief realm? And I don't know. I'm not you know advanced enough with stats to really say. It will be interesting, I think, to see, though, whether the team that does give those guys a fortune will want to lay down some ground rules before they sign. Like, you know, we are giving you the biggest contract ever for a reliever. You don't need another contract. So we want to be able to use you however we want. And, you know, if we want to bring you in in non-save situations, you shouldn't care about saves because we are giving you all the money you'll ever need. And I wonder whether that will be a factor in the negotiations where, you know, certain teams will be pushing that more than others. And maybe those guys will be more amenable to that or less amenable to that. So it'll be interesting to see whether that becomes part of that market. You have to imagine. I mean, that was a factor that got cited with Miller's willingness to pitch every single inning for the for the Indians is best. (laughs) playoffs yeah he had already been paid so yeah all right well tim are there any other storylines or particular players you are looking forward to to following like last year i think rich hill was the most fascinating free agent to me and i think he probably might be again is there anyone who uh you just are very curious to see where he goes or what he gets or any other trends you'll be watching yeah i was gonna bring up rich hill Um, i'm a huge fan of his and i have been since he was on the cubs and it's strange that he could be the best pitcher, and it's strange that you know he's a he's a 36 year old guy who who just doesn't throw innings and has somewhat proven that he's he's this new guy, but it's still only been 150 innings or something like that. So to see who talks themselves into that will be very interesting. I think he pretty much has to get three years because it's just like. Well, the interest has to be big from from these big market teams, and somebody will do something irrational. But he could still be worth it, you know. For a hundred innings a year, he could still be worth it. Mm-hmm. So he's pretty fascinating to me, and I'm also just really curious about these guys who are re-entering the market. Who pretty much for all of them, we're not projecting them to have an issue getting a three or four year contract. Um, even I think like we've been talking a lot about Matt Weeders on our team and. You know, we kind of tried to play it safe, and I think we put him for three years and $39 million, But, you know, I mean, he's still a guy where I think a team could go to four years and, and give him a number that would surprise a lot of people after, you know, he felt his market was bad enough to accept a qualifying offer. And then suddenly, if he were to get $50 bucks, I think people would be like, whoa, you know, where'd that come from? Yeah, and one other guy that I wanted to bring up uh, is, like Hill, someone who's been through enough that you feel like he sort of deserves the the big payday at this point. It's Wilson Ramos. Did you have any rough projections for his contract before the knee injury? Do you have any sense of how much, you know, that, that might have cost him? Yeah, I, mean, I think we were pretty locked in on, on a five-year deal you know, in that Russell Martin $80 million range. And, and I think, you know, we kind of worked our way up to it, but we felt good about it and he looked so good and he's so young and he's so, he's so different from the other free agents and from the other free agent catchers. And so, yeah, I mean, I think you could say that that cost him at least 30 million bucks and probably more. Yeah, I would assign him to five for 80 in a heartbeat before before the knee injury. Yeah, and so if you felt that way, then maybe teams multiple teams would have felt that way and they would have went even higher 
We are taking a fairly aggressive stance on him right now at four years and 50 million. I mean, certainly some people think that he'll take a one-year deal or he'll he'll be kind of stuck on a three-year deal. And, you know, far be it for me to say that that wouldn't happen. But I also think some team will kind of see some a bit of a bargain there like, hey, you know what? He could be back in June, possibly. And so if we could just survive a few months, we're going to have a guy who we really, really like um, on a much smaller contract. But the question is, you know, does he come back and and it's as if it never happened? And then there's no heightened risk of like a third ACL tear? I don't know. So maybe yeah, once yeah. the doctors take a look, a lot of them will say, hey, four years is crazy. There's just huge risk with him that I don't really know about. All right. Well, Tim, is this your uh, peak period other than the trade deadline? Is this the, the top traffic time for MLB trade rumors? Um, yeah, we're headed into it. It is, it's always uh, December, the winter meetings. So mm-hmm. that's our crazy time. But I think when that list goes up and, and especially when you see a couple of the contracts get signed, interest really jumps up. I mean, because mm-hmm. there's been so many fans who've just been waiting for this, um, you know, like the playoffs don't matter to them. Their team's not yeah. in it and they're just waiting to see who their team can get. Yeah. All right. Well, you can keep up with all this news. You can follow Tim on Twitter at Tim Dirks. You can follow MLB Trade Rumors at MLB Trade Rumors or MLBTradeRumors.com. Or if you're a pitch fan, TradeRumors.com. It will <laughs> all get you to the same place. Tim, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks, guys. My pleasure. All right. So that will do it for today. We will be back next Monday with another episode of the Ringer MLB Show. Michael, good talking to you. You too. We will talk to you all next week. <laughs>